Hello and welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Swearing. I'm your host for today, and today we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin. But before we get into that discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, and follow us on social media at RTB underscore official so you can be informed of our new videos and other content we produce. Well, I'm excited today because we have a, uh, uh, an expert in talking about the Shroud of Turin, and I got Dr. Joe Bergeron. Well, Joe, it's good to, really good to have you on the show. I know you've got a background in medicine, and I know you've researched extensively about the Shroud. Why don't you, can, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how it relates to what we're going to be talking about with the Shroud today. Uh, certainly. Uh, I'm a practicing physician. I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation. And my practice has been really focused on musculoskeletal injury, uh, evaluation, treatment, long-term impairment, and uh, medical legal implications of that. Uh, I've also authored a book, uh, The Crucifixion of Jesus, a Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Christ. And that's what segued me into studying the Shroud of Turin and what medical implications we can glean from observations of the man of the shroud. That's pretty fascinating, especially when you consider, uh, you know, the idea that crucifixion happened. Uh, you know, I've had a little bit of education where people are telling me what's going on. It's really a pretty brutal process. And that's kind of, in a very real sense, what we're looking at when we're looking at the shroud is, does this align with Christ's or our, some, our crucifixion in sense? So why don't I just turn the floor over to you? I know you've got a little bit of presentation. Why don't you go ahead and uh, share your screen. I know you've got some slides. Uh, give us your presentation, and then as you go through, I'll I may ask you some questions as we're going through, but we'll we'll dialogue a little bit more once you're through with that as well. Yes, it's it's a fascinating thing actually to uh, to look at the shroud and see the correlation between the biblical descriptions of Jesus' execution and. Uh, Jeff, I want to preface what I'm going to say is a lot of people want to focus on the Shroud of Turin. And they want to hear an assessment of whether the Shroud of Turin is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Uh, that I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, what I am going to do is go through observations of the man of, of the Shroud and uh, what the injuries are evident and the medical uh, implications of what we see on the Shroud. Whether the Shroud is authentic is a personal determination. It's it's as 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 opposed to a scientific scientific observation, so viewers and listeners can decide for themselves uh, what they think about the shroud. But what I want to do today is give a objective assessment to what is seen on the shroud. I'm going to preface my remarks by talking about Jewish funerary customs in the Second Temple period, which are well understood. It was a cultural norm to for a family to have a a tomb cut in stone if they could afford it. And here you see an image of a uh, stone-cut tomb. There would be a small entry room, not, not big enough to stand up in, but big enough to prepare the body. The customary uh, preparation or embalming, if you will, uh, was to wash the body, anoint it with uh, perfumes and uh, spices, wrap it in a, a burial shroud, and affix it with uh, uh, strips. Um, they would then sprinkle uh, aromatic plants over the body, 
And once the, uh, the soft tissue components of the body were no longer present, the bones would be collected and placed in a bone box or an ossuary. So here you would see the, the place where they would prepare the body. The bodies would be placed in inlets cut into the stone walls, which is what you see here. Uh, this is a find of a body that is wrapped in a shroud. You can see that the cloth covers the body over the head and draped to the feet front and back. This particular find was buried into the ground, which is what they would do if they could not afford a, a family tomb as Joseph of Arimathea was able to do. Uh, this is a, a unenhanced a snapshot of the uh, Shroud of Turin, pretty much every image you see is enhanced. And you can see this is from uh, two to three meters away, and it's very faint. I have heard multiple people say or read that if you're standing next to it, it's very hard to see. You have to take a couple steps back to uh, get, a, get a sense of what the image really is. Um, you can see on the sides of the image of the man, there are burn marks. There was a, the shroud has been in several fires, most notably in 1532. You can see uh, patches there that, that were attempts to repair the cloth uh, after the fire. Uh, this uh, is a second hey, Joe, if you could real quickly go back to that last, just the image there. Yeah. So I, I'm having trouble getting a scale of the image there. So it, it almost looks... You know, it looks like they're, they're on each side, there's the two dots, a line coming down and a big kind of bulbous structure at the bottom. What's, yes. the, wh what's the scale of that or where would the image be in there? Uh, I'm going to show you a full, full image of the shroud in a bit, but okay, it would be uh, essentially the size of a, of a six foot tall man, plus or minus uh, an inch or two. And then what you see, the dark markings are, are the burn marks. Okay. Which so are the important. Dark markings are the burn marks, then. Yes, and then you see the triangular things are repairs that were done by uh, the Sisters of the Poor Clares in 1530. Very good. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. This is uh, Secunda Pio. He was an amateur photographer, and in those days when they did photography, they would use glass plates with an emulsion that was light sensitive. So, his what he used uh, inadvertently enhanced bluish shades. Uh, or hues. And what happened when he took the photograph is that he accidentally or inadvertently enhanced the image. And mm. so people were able to see the shroud in a way that they had never seen it before. Uh, now you can see on the left, the photo negative of the shroud face, and it almost looks you know, like a photo positive of, of a photograph. Now, uh, please understand, I'm not saying it's a photograph at all, or even anything like a photograph, uh, photo, because it long predates photographic technology, but it has characteristics that are like that. And then on the right, you see the uh, photo positive, uh, which almost looks like a photo negative. So it's a very peculiar finding. And um, it it really, this is when people started paying attention to it more, it became uh somewhat famous. Uh, to examine the man of the shroud, um, again, the man is, is about six feet tall, 72 inches plus or minus. There is a front back differential where the front is approximately seven centimeters uh, longer than the back image. That's uh, considered to relate to uh, mild flexion of the trunk and limbs in rigor mortis and draping of the cloth over the body. The neck is flexed 
And I've heard people just, you know, in a quandary, why, why is the neck? Why don't we see the neck? Uh, the answer is obvious. And, and that is that the, uh, it's a sign of rigor mortis. Uh, someone being on the cross, their neck would be hung down and rigor mortis would have maintained the flexed posture of the neck. Right. Uh, some would argue, well, that's not long enough for rigor mortis to kick in. And, and I understand that point, you know, and, uh, myself as a couch potato and if i were to fall dead before you all it would probably take a couple hours for rigor mortis to set in for me but someone that dies in a high metabolic state and a violent death can go into rigor mortis very quickly hmm. and it, in in essence uh, almost instantly or what is debated in pathology literature is called the cadaveric spasm where there's essentially instantaneous rigor mortis. That's why the neck is flexed. Uh, there's excoriations on the forehead, the upper lip and jaw are swollen, natal, the nasal cartilage is separated. That's what in common vernacular, we would call that a, a broken nose. Mm -hmm. um, the, the nose prominence is cartilage, I think you know, but it appears to be separated. There are uh, puncture wounds in the scalp there's blood flow from the puncture wounds in the scalp, hands, and uh, feet, and chest. There are about 100, uh, depending on who counts them, but roughly 100 bidirectional scourge marks that have dumbbell imprints uh, associated with it and uh, halo, halos that look to be serum, of, uh, the liquid component of blood that can be seen on ultraviolet light. Uh, there's abrasion over the shoulder, which is uh, some considered to be a sign of carrying the patibulum. Uh, you know, in, in the crucifixion in the first uh, century in Jerusalem, the horizontal section of the cross is what the a, a victim would carry. The vertical section was permanently placed in the ground, and uh, the, the horizontal section would be nailed to the hands. Then the victim would be lifted and placed upon the uh, vertical section. So it's probably different than what we see in most artwork, but, but that's maybe consistent with that. And then there's a chest wound between the right fifth and sixth intercostal space, which would be consistent with uh, the stab wound that Jesus experienced uh, described in John chapter 19. And here you see the front and back images of, of the shroud. Again, this is mildly enhanced. Uh, again, you see the burn marks we talked about. You can see what look like poker holes there, kind of in an L shape. You see that? Uh, those are thought to be from the, that the shroud would be placed on a table as part of worship and and uh, droppings from incense that burned the cloth is what, what those are thought to be from. Uh, and uh, the arms are placed in front of the pelvis. They would have had to break the rigor mortis at the shoulders to uh, place the arms in front of the, uh, the body. Right. Uh, you can see that the legs are uh, slightly flexed with uh, blood oozing from the uh, feet, the, uh, the chest wound you can see, and with uh, a trail of blood dripping around to the back as if the body were in a supine or, or lying on its back position. Uh, you see the puncture wounds in the scalp. Uh, now the puncture wounds in the scalp are a really peculiar finding and something to observe because it would not have been typical uh, of a crucifixion victim, but it would have been something telltale or consistent with the descriptions of Jesus execution. Now, uh, it, 
crowns were common in Roman culture, the highest honor in the Roman culture would be to receive the crown of grass or the corona graminea, uh, which would be awarded to a general by the army by unanimous vote if the general had been able to save the army from destruction and lead them on to victory. And what they would do would be harvest plant material from the area that they had conquered and fashion a crown out of it. Uh, so it's it's my opinion, and not, not mine only, that the crown that they placed on Jesus' head was mocking him as if he had conquered the Romans in their territory uh, and uh, mocking him as a political insurgent as, as the king of the Jews. So you wouldn't see scalp punctures with probably any other crucifixion victim the way we see in the Shroud of Turin. As I said, the victim would carry the uh, horizontal section of the cross uh, on his shoulders back to the crucifixion site. Uh, they would uh, walk naked through the town carrying the Titillus Crucis, which uh, would have the crimes for which they were being executed. Their hands would be nailed and then the horizontal section would be placed on the vertical section by a mortise and tenon coupling. Uh, and we see this area of bruising across the shoulder, which some believe uh, is consistent with uh, carrying the uh, patibulum. So is, the, is that across the back section of the person or the front section of the person there? Oh, this is the back. I'm sorry. Back. This is uh, across the shoulder blades. Gotcha. And you see the scourge marks on the Shroud of Turin are consistent with the kind of uh, whip that was used in uh, Jerusalem in Jesus' time. To nail a hand to the cross is a little bit problematic. You, you see in artwork where most of the time they'll put the nail right through the center. And uh, Dr. Barbet did experiments on hands that had to be amputated, unfortunately, and found out that if you put a nail through the middle of the palm, like we see in artwork, about 100 pounds of extraction force would pull the nail uh, out between the fingers. Right. But if you put the nail through the wrist bones, which would be basically if you bend your ring finger down to the uh, base of the vertical wrist crease in your palm and drove a nail through there, it would go through the wrist bones without fracturing them and uh, create a stable fixation to 240 pounds of extraction force. And uh, it, when you did this, uh, it would macerate the median nerve that goes through the wrist. That's the nerve that can be injured with carpal tunnel syndrome. And Dr. this is an x-ray from Dr. Barbet, who did this on a dozen amputated hands and found that it was consistent each time. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's an image of the hand. And people have been perplexed, or, or they debate, have debates about, why don't we see the thumb? And try to try to figure out why we're not seeing the thumb. It's just, the answer is really quite obvious in my, in my view. Um, People have said, well, if you macerate the nerve, you'll cramp the hand, and that's why we don't see the, the, the thumb. Well, that, of course, is true, but once the thumb muscles that control the thumb lose their nerve supply, the thumb will go flaccid. And what you see, even some artwork, you'll see uh, the hand in this position. And this is the position of a hand without the median nerve. Where you know, So that's not the explanation but i think the explanation is obvious if you drove a nail through here as what is demonstrated in dr barbet's examples that it will tether the the thumb uh, the muscles that you know the thumb is very complex it 
laterally abducts, palmary abducts, and it rotates across the, the hand, the adducts. And if you put a nail through there and you tether those muscles, it's going to draw the thumb in. And the thumb will then be fixed in rigor mortis fairly rapidly. And I think that's an easy, expl obvious explanation of why we don't see the thumbs. Uh, so also, the thumb would be basically be drawn up into the palm of the hand or something like that and just yes. not visible on the surface at all. Yes, okay. I, I think I think that that easily explains why we don't see the thumbs because people have been in a quandary about why. I, I think it's fairly obvious or straightforward. Um, here you see the, the blood stain in the hand and Dr. Barbet thought, oh, look, it's bifurcating and, and that, that must mean that Jesus was changing on a, a position on the cross in order to breathe and he believed that Jesus uh, died by suffocation. And, you know, that's a little bit of complex talk. I, I'll just say that that's really not supportable. Uh, and um, the, the cause of Jesus' death was a traumatic hemorrhagic shock. But what I want you to see here and what Dr. Zugaby pointed out is that this blood stain is not consistent with being driven through the hand of a person that was alive because uh, there would be a, a much more copious discharge of blood from something like that. This blood stain is consistent with uh, residual bleeding uh, after the body had been wrapped in the shroud, uh, wrapped in the cloth. And um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't support Dr. Barbe's uh, hypothesis, but, but really what it is, it's a demonstration of, of uh, blood oozing from wounds in somebody that died a traumatic death, which can be seen. You also see by the blood stain kind of a halo around the blood. Uh, if you can see that, that's evidence of separation of the serum components from the cellular components of blood. So, so this is showing largely, or you know, that where the location of the puncture wound is down in that wrist area rather than up in the palm of the hand, and also, it, it, if I get what you're saying, it's that this, this wound happened, or the, the wound happened quite a while ago, so there isn't copious amounts of blood coming out. Well, it's if if you, it, you it's it's really difficult to support to say that this is evidence of bleeding from a living person. The vascular system, if it were pressurized by a beating heart, would have a larger discharge of blood. Gotcha. What this is, is indicated, indicated, indicative of, as Dr. Zugaby pointed out, that it's a low pressure system, that it's consistent with oozing from a wound after the body had died. Gotcha. Okay. So died. There, there may have been, might have been a bunch of blood at one point in time, but whenever the shroud or whenever this piece of cloth was put on, there just wasn't a lot coming out at that point in time. Yes, it's very clear that the body was washed. Um, that's part of the Jewish funerary customs I, I said a minute ago. And and what you don't see on the shroud is blood all over the place. Right. You, you can see some serum residue, I said, on ultraviolet light, but you don't see blood except where the puncture wounds are, which is consistent with blood oozing or, or residual blood bleeding after the body had died, uh, which can be seen in a traumatic uh, death. And as I proposed in, in, in my book, a traumatic uh, uh, trauma-induced coagulopathy where the blood can lose its capacity to clot. Right. So that's not an unusual finding per se, but there, it's clear that the body was washed and that this is bleeding from uh, wounds after the body had been taken down, washed and placed in the shroud 
after that, these uh, blood stains appeared or came about. Very good. Um, you, you can see, you know, in John, I think chapter 19, he, he says he's redundant. He says, I saw a spear go in, I saw water, and I saw blood come out. And uh, the explanation for that is that fluid around the chest, in the chest wall would be clear, uh, what's called a pleural effusion, unless there were penetrating trauma. So to impale the chest, one would first encounter fluid around the, the lungs, which would be clear. Once the heart was ruptured, it would mix with that fluid and have the appearance of blood. So you'd have the appearance of water and blood, which Origen thought was a miraculous sign, but really it's well understood medically. Um, now, and I would say, just as a point, um, you know, crucifixion victims were generally left on the cross to be eaten by scavenging animals. There are very few re remains that have been found, and there, there are about three that I think are credible, and we'll probably find more as time goes on. But they were, you know, over the hundreds of thousands that probably were crucified over centuries of time, we're just not finding a lot of remains as you might think you would. Uh, and that's why we don't. Uh, but they were going to release Jesus' body. Now, you understand, Roman military discipline was austere, and if they allowed a, a convicted felon to escape crucifixion, the crucifixion team was going to die themselves. So this was not a coup de grace. This was an effort to assure that there was no possible way that Jesus could be alive once they released the body, because that would mean their own deaths if that were, were to happen. So that's why they did this. And uh, and then, as I said, you can see the, the puncture wound in the chest with uh, oozing from there that wraps around to the uh, back. So is that uh, what you're seeing kind of on the left image there to the left side? Yes. Okay. And it's inverted because it's photonegative. Right. It didn't include that. And then you see on the right-hand slide, you can see the rivulet going across the back uh, of from the, the discharge from the chest wound. Very good. So, no, well, that's fascinating. I, I really appreciate uh, what you what you've brought, just because it gives. I like that. You know, here, here's the factual. Here's what's on there. Here's the explanation for what it's see. Um, what I find remarkable is just how consistent this image is with Roman crucifixion. Um, yes. I don't know whether there was any doubt that Romans actually crucified people, but uh you know the the idea that jesus was crucified this would send to, seem to give a lot of support that yeah this sort of practice was going on the biblical description whether this was ever jesus burial cloth or not independent of that question that the description given in the uh account in the gospels is remarkably accurate for what was going on yes i, I think it has standalone historical significance even if 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 you're not a, a Christian and you don't want to believe anything about Jesus, it still has historical significance. It's well known that cruci crucifixion was widely practiced by uh, the Romans uh, beginning in uh, the third century BC up until uh, 341 when it was uh, eliminated by Constantine. Um, and th they had vigorous belief in crucifixion as a deterrent. In the Spartacus Rebellion in 70 BC, uh, it was very successful. The Romans dispatched 30,000 soldiers to uh, put down the Servile Rebellion, and the Romans crucified 6,000 people 
6,000 on the Appian Way, which is a highway that goes from Rome down through the center of Italy. 6,000 people. Wow. <laughs> so that's that they believed it was a deterrent. It probably was. They were probably right. So the, Jesus this would have seen people point. crucified. Huh? Yeah. So, so you said that there have been a handful of crucified bodies that have been found, you know, I think yes. two or three or something like that, but it's, yes. it's a handful, it sounds like. Yes. Have there been any, are there any other cloths like this that are around, or is this the only one that we've found that has a shroud cloth that has been from a crucified burial? Not from a crucified burial. There have been rare finds of uh, burial cloths. Uh, they're usually very decayed. Uh, they're unlike uh, the Shroud of Turin. So, I mean, what is there any, uh, you know, I'm not going into the chemical analysis or dating or anything. Is there anything that uh, gives an indication of why this one has been so long lived? Was it just found earlier and preserved well or or what? Do you know? Linen is a very stable fabric. If it's kept properly, it will last essentially forever. Uh, so if, if someone had uh, felt the cloth was significant, grabbed it and kept it, it would be you know, reasonable to think that it would survive to modern times. There are other cloth, you know, Egyptian linen and it's found with mummies, linen found with the Dead Sea Scrolls that are of equal age. Okay, so in some sense, it's not that unusual to find a cloth that may be thousands of years old. Oh, no, it's been not at all. well taken care of, which... If, if you take care of it, it, it would last indefinitely. So so what are your, in, in your assessment, or I mean, people who would say, look at this and say, okay, here's clearly a cloth of someone who was crucified. It has, it, it lines up remarkably well with that. It's got yes, wounds it's... in the wrist, it's got the wounds in the side, it's got the maybe even a, a crown of thorns. Um, you know, it just seems very consistent with that. To someone who wants to say, yeah, this is Christ's burial cloth, or even just, what do we do? How would you walk away? What's the the takeaway for the, for the person who wants to say, hey, I think this points to the truth of Christianity. What would you say, or how would you use this to point to the truth of Christianity? Well, uh, as I said at the beginning, there are pe people that... Uh, Get, uh, I mean, there are people that believe it's the authentic burial cloth of Christ, and there are people that believe it's absolutely not that, and they get really emotional about it, <laughs> you know. And uh, the the bigger point, I think, is that well, first you asked how, how do you how do you assess authenticity? I mean, so that's a subjective determination. It's apart from observational studies, which is what I want to stick to, and leave it to the individual to decide. It becomes a matter of faith, I think, or subjective determination at that point for the individual, um, because the observations are the observations. What you can say is the shroud has been extensively studied, it has not been explained away as a hoax or a fraud, and it bears the marks of a person that was crucified expressly the way that the biblical descriptions describe Jesus' crucifixion in a way that would not be true with probably anybody else or or very few people. As I said, it would be unusual for the remains to be released for burial anyway, but mm -hmm. it, it's happened. But the crucifixion finds that we have uh, 
you know, there, uh, it's, you know, there aren't other signs of, uh, injury, but there are nail marks through, through the heels is how we can tell that those were crucifixion victims. But the image of the shroud has telltale features that this are consistent with the biblical descriptions of Jesus' execution. And I think that's that's what we can say about it, is you can believe it, you cannot believe it, but at least it points us to, to say, well, if you can think maybe it's true, then maybe you'll take a look at the Gospels and consider that maybe what Christians believe really is is accurate and true. Very good. You, you made a statement in there that uh, we think it's, or you know, that it seems to be authentic. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a question that's independent of, was it Jesus' burial cross, but is it an authentic artifact? So what are the, if, if you could summarize just kind of in a, in a few, or maybe a, a minute or two, what do you think is the most potent evidence that this is a, an actual burial cloth, not somebody trying to do something later that makes it look like a burial cloth? What I did say is that it's been extensively studied and has not been explained away as a hoax. Okay. And that it does show telltale signs of the biblical descriptions of Jesus. In terms of, is it an actual burial cloth? It's an ancient cloth that has the the physical dimensions and characteristics of a burial shroud, which is what, you know, the Jewish people did and I think still do today. Uh, you know, so... Was it an actual burial burial shroud that that becomes a, maybe a, a reach beyond what what uh, the facts uh, allow us to make? But uh, it certainly has the markings of that. Okay, so yeah, that, you know, I appreciate your clarification there. It's not that we know that it's authentic, but any mm -hmm. at least any of the ways that we look for would it be a hoax? it seems to be authentic in, in that fashion. Not that we've validated that it's genuinely is, but none of the hoaxes seem to, ex or the ability to show that it's a hoax, those have come up short of being credible. Yes, and, and it's been extensively studied and, and it's never been established to be a hoax. What what are some of the the things that people have looked at that said, oh, maybe this is a hoax that, that would get it there? Just uh, kind of, trying to, for people who would look at this and say, I just kind of want to understand what people have said and what are going to people respond against to claim that it's, uh, that it is a hoax. What are some of the arguments they've used to contend that it is a hoax or that is a, a... Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that in, in detail. I mean, people have, uh, First off, that you understand that there are people that don't believe in Jesus and never will. So for that group of people, it would automatically be considered some sort of hoax. Right. And then folks have proposed different sorts of explanations. Was it painted? Was it this? And, you know, did Leo and Leonardo da Vinci do it? Did Who, who did this? Was it a medieval art master? And, you know, what? Uh, <clears throat> You know, various kinds of things that people have proposed. Um, I, I don't consider myself an expert in those kind of things because I, uh, you know, I, I think the evidence themselves, if you do a deep dive on, on what is understood about the image of the man, but also the chemical and physical characteristics of the cloth, that, you know, those kind of fade away or fall away. Well, this is... I, I, from my perspective, as I've looked, I found the Shroud of Turin to be something very interesting. Uh, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I, I've 
loved your description just because it seems like regardless of what else is going on there, it seems very consistent with a Roman crucifixion. Um, you know, it yes, seems it to have the, the hallmarks of a burial cloth that unless it is some sort of falsification or replication, it validates the idea that the description given in the gospel accounts is what the Romans were doing or people were doing at the time. And so I, I think that's a fascinating thing. Whether it's Jesus' burial cloth is an entirely different discussion to me. I think, okay, if it is, I think that's fascinating. If it's not, nothing in my faith hinges on we found the burial cloth. It's, you know, in some sense, it's kind of like looking for the ark. You know, if we ever find the ark, great, fantastic. I don't think we ever yeah. will. Um, and if we don't, that doesn't do anything to invalidate scripture what scripture is describing there it sounds like uh you, know, you kind of have a similar perspective am i correct uh true yeah and and i mean the the man was clearly crucified and, and you look there's there's blood on on the cross on the on the shroud uh if somebody wanted to paint blood stains they would use red paint <laughs> you, you know i mean blood would be a difficult medium to paint with because it's it's not specifically a liquid it has cellular components it coagulates Right. Now, blood is an easy supply. You could get that, but it would be a hard medium for an artist to use to paint. It's not something they would do. Right. So just in terms of uh, the physical characteristics of the cloth, you know, we've talked about that it lines up with uh, what the Roman or what the the Roman descriptions of crucifixion with the biblical descriptions of crucifixion not by any means saying this is an authentic burial cloth, but it certainly has withstood every test being thrown at it so far, it sounds like. Yes. Um, it does line up with the idea that uh, whoever was buried with this was uh, had a traumatic, just massive hemorrhaging not, rather than suffocation or some other form of death. Is there any other, uh, you know, just kind of looking at the physical characteristics, things that stand out that you haven't discussed that you'd want people to know before we wrap up our show today? Uh, not specifically. I just, you know, uh, there are telltale signs of rigor mortis in, in, in the body. I, I had someone ask me recently, oh, oh, look, the the legs are flexed. And so maybe, you know, Jesus was kind of reclining in the tomb and kind of revived. And and uh, I, I, I called that the uh, uh, recliner in the tomb theory. Uh, but those are really tell tell signs of of rigor mortis, and I, I guess the most credible kind of uh, cont contest to that would be um, the idea that rigor mortis can take some time to set in, uh, and so that's why some people have said, "Oh, look, there's signs of life in in the shroud." So the guy wasn't dead when they wrapped him in it. Um, that's one you asked me, it just came to mind, you asked what, what people can test about the shroud. I think that's a more credible one than some, so many others. But uh, I, I mean, if you read pathology books, and I, I would advise you not to do that. And if, if you do, at least don't look at the pictures. <laughs> but but um, uh, they're eye-popping. Let me tell you. I, I could imagine even, even for me, but uh, the concept of rapid onset rigor mortis is is well under is well, you know, attested to, and to that's what that shows. That's why the legs are flexed. That's why there's uh, considered to be a mild flexion of the trunk, flexion of the neck, 
um, those things. It's it's a finding of rigor mortis in my view. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate your comments today. Uh, I think I'd love, love to have another show where we look at maybe some of the dating and the chemical analysis of what's going on with the shroud. But your just the description of what's going on physically is just fascinating. And I, I love the discussion of the rigor mortis and you know, just learned some interesting medical stuff that was going on there. And I hope really hope the, the audience you here have enjoyed the show as well. Um, we enjoy bringing star cells and God to you, uh, equipping you to be able to see the truth of Christianity and want you to encourage you to remember to like this video, subscribe for more content. We have new episodes of Star Cells and God release each Thursday, or they're available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we learn about science, the more we have reasons to believe.